Good evening, everyone. I'll pray before we begin. Our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for the opportunity we've had over these last few weeks to remember together these wonderful truths uh, that come from your word, but that were rediscovered at the time of the Reformation. And we pray that we would never lose sight of just how wonderful it is that our salvation is not earned, because if it was, no one could be saved. Instead, we are saved by grace alone, the free gift you have given us in Christ alone, and we take a hold of that gift by faith alone. And Father, we thank you that you reveal yourself to us in your word. And so we pray that as we think about this topic together now, that you will teach us by your word, and you will help us not just to understand it, but to believe it and trust it and live by it. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I hope you uh, have enjoyed our series on the Reformation for the last four weeks. Each week what we've tried to do is tell uh, a story, tell one of the stories of uh, uh, one of the heroes who fought these battles for the faith and many of them died uh, for their faith. But more importantly than that, uh, what we've tried to do is look at the truths that were rediscovered at the time of the Reformation. Uh, And so we've looked at these things we call the solas. Uh, There were five of them, we've looked at four of them, there they are up on the screen. The first is faith alone, and we looked at the story of Martin Luther. Uh, We saw the truth of grace alone, and we looked at uh, the story of John Calvin. We looked at Christ alone with Thomas Cranmer, and then we looked at the Bible alone and William Tyndale. Uh, And there was a fifth sola, or alone, which is to the glory of God alone. Uh, But I decided that this week, instead, we would think about something a little bit different, to finish off our series and that is we're going to think about the Lord's Supper so that's what we're looking at tonight uh, and so the question you might be thinking is why you know why think about the Lord's Supper aren't, why don't think about one of these other great doctrines uh, there are lots of other great doctrines we can think about so why think about the Lord's Supper and the reason is uh, that especially in England which is the, the sort of historical background for our denomination the Anglican Church uh, this was the issue that the reformers died for. Uh, This was the reason they were burnt at the stake. Uh, For men like Thomas Cranmer, William Tyndale, Hugh Latimer, they were thinking, if in their mind this wasn't what they were fighting for, they were fighting for the fact that it is Christ alone that saves us. Uh, They were fighting for the fact that, that it is by grace through faith, not by works that we are made right with God. They were fighting for the fact that it's the Bible that's the authority, not the Pope or the church or the bishop or whoever else that's what they were fighting for but the reason they died the reason they were burned at the stake is because they would not recant what they said about this the lord's supper the mass as it was called and it's funny in a really sad sort of way because it shows a sad reality you see we know that in the end what matters more than anything is theology what matters more than anything is what you believe it's knowing the truth that matters but often in church life the thing that gets people upset is when you change what we do in church and it's a sad reality but many Christians don't notice when all sorts of false ideas come out of the mouth of the guy up the front they don't notice when the guy in the pulpit or at the microphone is sprouting all sorts of nonsense maybe they're not listening but but you change the way we do the Lord's Supper and oh You know, or you change the way the minister is dressed, or or you move the furniture around. We've done that here, but anyway. Uh, Or heaven forbid you change the type of music we play. 
You do those things and people are up in arms. It's, it's on for young and old. That is the sad reality of church history. And that's why, sadly, all around Australia and all around the world, there are churches that have not changed their style or their structure at all. They're back in 1650, if you like. Ironically, the things the Bible doesn't talk about, the things the Bible doesn't care about, and the things that are open to change, they've said, do not change those. They must remain the same. But the message they preach from the pulpit has evolved and changed and bears no resemblance to the message of the Bible or the message that these reformers died for back in the 15 and 1600s. Isn't that the most awful tragedy? Isn't that just the saddest thing, that people will happily let go of the truth while sticking firm to the way they do church? But as I say, this was the issue that really made people see the difference. You see, people sort of say, the, the, the average person in England or Germany or one of these places sort of thought, well, you know, it's intellectuals and bishops and, and university people who are talking about these, these funny ideas about whether it's faith or works or, or whether it's a free gift or something you earn or whether it's Christ alone or whether the church has a role to play. Uh, but in the end, they sort of said, that, that's for people out there to argue about. But when it came into the church and it changed the way the Lord's Supper was taken... That's when people noticed the difference and said, ah, something different is happening here. But more than that, it's worth us understanding properly anyway. Why do we do this when we do it? Why do we have this bread and this grape juice? Uh, And what are we doing when we do it? And in particular, the reason I want to talk about it is I find this is an area where people who theoretically believe in Bible alone, who if I say to them, what is the authority in all matters of faith and conduct? They say the Bible. The Bible's the most important thing. Or they believe in Christ alone. They, they believe in grace alone. They believe in faith alone. At least intellectually, this is an area where all too often, many, many people fall back into unbiblical and frankly sort of mystical pagan ideas about what's going on when we take the Lord's Supper. So all of that is to say it's worth us taking this week to think about the Lord's Supper. Now, it has to be said, this was one area where the Reformers had different ideas And so Martin Luther, who started the Reformation, went to his grave still, I think, not really understanding the Lord's Supper, still stuck in his pre-Reformation view of what was happening at the Lord's Supper. Uh, And so the Reformers actually argued amongst themselves about the Lord's Supper. So I can't cover everything on such a big topic, so I'm just going to deal with some of the main issues. If you've got other questions, come and speak to me afterwards. And rather than start with sort of the wrong ideas and correct them, let's try something novel and we'll start with the Bible. That's a novel idea, isn't it? So we're starting with Jesus and the first Lord's Supper. So open up your Bible, you'll need it open at Luke 22. Now, you get a description of the Lord's Supper in each of Matthew, Mark and Luke's Gospels. You don't get one in John's Gospel, which is interesting even of itself, that John didn't think it worth including in his Gospel which we'll get to a little later on. Uh, And that says something in and of itself. But what you see in each of the three accounts, and we're just looking at the Luke passage because it's the one we decide to read, uh, what you see is at its heart what Jesus was doing when he took that first Lord's Supper was he was using it as a graphic way of explaining his death. And that is what the Lord's Supper is all about. The Lord's Supper is a way of explaining the death of Jesus. 
Now under that heading, I'm going to draw out a couple of points from this passage. I've put them there on your outline so you can follow the headings. The first is, Jesus was saying that his death was a new Passover. Now this is really important. You need to understand your Old Testament to understand the point Jesus was making. But in each of the three accounts, and here in Luke you see it, Jesus makes a big point of the fact, this is the Passover meal. I want to share this Passover meal with you, with his disciples. And the Passover meal was where once a year, every Jew, literally every Jew, you did not miss the Passover meal. Jews to this day will still celebrate the Passover around the time we celebrate Easter, ironically, given Easter happened at the time of the Passover. But once a year, every Jew would get together, they would share this meal, and what they were doing is they were remembering the great act of God's salvation. That's what it was about. They were remembering the greatest moment in their history where God came and took them out of slavery in Egypt and liberated them and made them a nation, his people, a people for his very own. And so in particular, they would remember how they had to sacrifice a lamb and paint its blood on the doorframe of their house in Egypt. And, what, and as God came in his judgment on Egypt for their sin, he passed over, that's where the name comes from, every house that had sacrificed a lamb and painted its blood on the doorframe. And the idea was they had offered the sacrifice of the lamb. And so the lamb had paid for their sins. The lamb had died in their place. And so every year they would get together and they ate the meal. And during the meal... All of these different parts of it symbolised aspects of what God had done for them in the Passover. So obviously they would eat lamb, you know, and so forth. Uh, And they would have these cups and they would eat the bread. And each part of it had a symbolic meaning, helping them to remember what God had done all those years ago. But here Jesus takes that and he says, these symbols that used to remind you of what God did at the Passover... They are now going to symbolise for you a greater act of salvation. This bread, he says, is now my body, which is crucified for you. Now Jesus wasn't saying that that bread had transformed magically into his body. It's called a metaphor. Jesus does it all the time. I am the bread of life. He's not saying I'm a loaf of bread. He... (laughs) He's not saying this is magical bread. He's saying this is a symbol. My body's standing here in front of you, talking to you at the time. But but this represents my body, which the very next day was going to be broken on your behalf. And this cup of wine, this symbolizes my blood, which is about to be shed for you. And in doing that, Jesus was saying something so wonderful. And if you take nothing else out of tonight's sermon, take this, please. He was saying this event, not the Lord's Supper... The Lord's Supper is just a pointer to the event. This event, meaning his actual death, this is now the great moment of history for you to remember for all time. This is now the great act of God's salvation. You used to look back and remember the Passover, but now, now God is bringing an even better salvation. In my death, I am dying in your place to save you from slavery, not to Egypt, but to sin and to God's judgment. And Jesus was saying, I am the real Lamb of God whose death has taken away your sin. 
Which leads into the second point Jesus was making about his death. And that is, Jesus was saying that his death marked a new way of relating to God. A new covenant with God. So look there at verse 20. It says, in the same way, Jesus also took the cup after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant established by my blood. It is shed for you. You see, in the Old Testament, when God had made his covenants, his his promises with his people, uh, they were established with the sacrifice of animals. That's what happened. So when he made his covenant with Abraham, there were animals sacrificed to mark that this is a solemn, unbreakable commitment. God's promise stands no matter what. Well, now Jesus is saying a new covenant has come. A new time has come. God is making you a new and more wonderful promise, the promise of forgiveness and the promise of new life. And this wine reminds you that it's by the spilling of my blood, not the blood of animals, but the blood of Jesus, that God has forgiven you. It is my blood that has ushered in this new promise from God of forgiveness and mercy and grace and love and hope for anyone who will trust in Jesus. So Jesus was giving his disciples this incredible visual explanation of the events that were about to happen, his death. But it wasn't just a one-off explanation. You see there in verse 19, he says, do this in remembrance of me. In the other Gospels, you you read him say, do this as often as you drink it, in remembrance of me. Jesus was saying, in the future, I want you to keep remembering my death. When you break bread, let it be a reminder to you every time you break it of my body, which was broken for you. And when you drink a cup of wine, let it be a reminder to you of my blood, which was shed for you. Jesus was saying, let these physical things be visible reminders Visible words, if you like, visible ways of preaching to you what I have done for you. Let them be visible reminders to you of God's wonderful act of salvation. And that is the heart of what the Lord's Supper is. Whatever else it is, it is a wonderful physical and visual reminder of the centre of our faith, the death of Jesus. But now I want to jump forward to the Reformation. So we're jumping 1500 years forward in history because by the 1500s the Lord's Supper had evolved into something very different from what it was meant to be in the Bible. By the 1500s the Mass, as it was often called, the the Mass had become the absolute centre of church life. That's why you went to church to receive the Mass. And it wasn't the reading of the Bible that was the centre of church life. It wasn't the teaching of the Bible that was the centre of church life. That The things you would expect to be from the New Testament, the things if you just had your New Testament, you'd say, well, that's, surely that's got to be the centre of what you do in church. That wasn't. You went to church to celebrate and receive the Mass. Now, there were so many problems with what was going on that I can't deal with them all. I mean, for starters, the Word of God couldn't be the centre because church was in Latin and most people didn't understand Latin. So even if the word of God was read, no one could understand it. So of course the thing people were going to focus on was the bit you could understand, which was the visual bit, which was seeing the the mass. And so that encouraged people to think, well, I, I can't understand what he's saying, but I can see that. 
And so that must be the most important bit. And that is why the reformers worked so hard. The most important thing they did, they all saw this as the most important thing they could do, was translate the Bible into the common language, in Germany into German, in in England into English, in France into French. And more than that, they wrote prayer books. They didn't do that so that 500 years later we'd still read a book in Old English. They did it so that people could actually understand what was happening when they went to church rather than just have something going on that they thought was mystical and they didn't really understand. But the centrality of the Mass at the time of the Reformation was more than that. See, what it came down to was that the Church taught that it was actually by receiving the Mass that you received God's grace. And so it tied to this idea of transubstantiation. It's a very handy word if you're playing Scrabble and you can spell it. Uh, But no one else can spell it, so you're pretty safe. Um, But... But transubstantiation was this idea that the bread and the wine kept the outward appearance of bread and wine. So you go, there's bread and wine over here. It didn't change how it looked, but it actually became the actual body and blood of Jesus. And so as the body of Jesus, it carried God's grace. So when you ate the body of Jesus, you received an infusion, if you like, it's like you might get a blood infusion at the, at the hospital. You received an infusion of God's grace automatically. So the blessed bread was sometimes called a drug of immortality uh, because it was saving you. By going to church and by taking the mass, whatever you believed or however you were living in the rest of your life, you received God's grace. Now, there are so many problems with that you hardly know where to start. I hope I don't have to point them all out to you. I mean, the first is God's grace is not some commodity to be stored up by the church and doled out by the church like some drug for sick people. And God's grace isn't something to just give you a bit of a boost every week. Now, God's grace is his wonderful free gift of salvation, as we've seen repeatedly from the scriptures over the last four weeks. God's grace is shown to us where most wonderfully? in the actual death of Jesus 2,000 years ago that has paid the price for your sins once and for all. You, You don't need an infusion. You have received the grace of God if you trust in Christ. And then, secondly, you don't receive that free gift from God by eating, drinking, eating bread or drinking wine. How do you receive God's grace? This is one where you show me you've listened for the last four weeks. How do you receive God's grace? Uh, by faith alone there you go some of you are listening by faith but people say oh in places like john 6 we can put it up on the screen in places like john 6 jesus talks about how he is the bread of life and you need to eat him to be saved look at john 6 35 jesus says i am the bread of life Jesus told them, no one who comes to me will ever be hungry and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again jesus wasn't talking about the lord's supper he's saying i am he's giving you a metaphor about faith he's saying trust in me and you find fulfillment you're never going to be hungry spiritually hungry ever again trust in me and you will receive eternal life you see you receive god's grace not by being involved in some mysterious ceremony in church you receive god's grace by faith by trusting in jesus who died for you and rose again You see, participating in some religious and mysterious ceremony had become just like pagan religion 
by the time of the Reformation, not the Christianity of the Bible. Now that idea that the bread and the wine became the body and blood of Jesus, that idea led to all sorts of other abuses. People would keep some of the bread in a box and worship it. And you can go into many churches, sadly including Anglican churches in some places, and and they keep the leftover bread in a locked box up the front of the church and people can come in and bow down to it and worship it. And and people hope that taking a piece of that bread might be a blessing to them and might help them in some way. And the reformers rightly said, that is just idolatry. That is no better than setting up a a, a, a statue of stone and bowing down and worshipping it. Jesus is not in a piece of bread. Jesus is not in a box at the front of church. Jesus is sitting at his father's right hand in heaven where he lives to intercede for you. And you worship Jesus not by coming and bowing down to a box at the front of church, but by trusting in what he's done for you and what he is doing for you and what he will do for you. You see, the core issue keeps coming back to grace alone, through faith alone. You do not meet God in some religious ceremony or in some experience. You meet him as you hear his word and you believe it, and you trust in him. And that led to the other great problem with what the church was doing, and sadly still does. Uh, Sadly, this is still official doctrine in many denominations. Uh, The whole ceremony was undercutting and denying that wonderful truth that we are saved by Christ alone. It was undercutting the fact that Jesus' death on the cross has already paid the price for your sins. So you don't need another sacrifice to be made for your sins. If you trust in Jesus and his death for you 2,000 years ago, then you are forgiven. You don't need a priest to come and offer you another sacrifice. But the church in the mass was doing and teaching something different. And you could see it in the words they used. The priest would go up to the altar, away from the people. He would say some magical words that people didn't understand and then Jesus' sacrificed body would be on the altar and it would be offered again, lifted up to God, offered up again for our sins. I hope you can see why that is just so wrong and just so not what the Bible says. We don't have priests who make sacrifices on our behalf. That's in the Old Testament. Sadly, sometimes people still want to call me a priest. That's why I say, call me a minister, or better still, call me Phil. That's my name. You don't need a priest. There's no place for priests in that sense. In the end, it's just a word, and if someone calls me that, such is life. But we don't need someone between us and God. We've got Jesus. You can go direct to Jesus. That's why you don't need saints. That's why you don't need Mary. That's why you don't need any of that. You have Jesus. Why would you go to something else when you have the Son of God who lives to intercede for you with the Father? And Jesus has come. He is our priest. He is our way to God, not some man in strange clothes up the front of church. And the only sacrifice that matters was the one Jesus made on your behalf on that cross outside Jerusalem. And now, well, now Jesus is risen from the dead. He is seated at his Father's right hand. He is speaking on your behalf. He is not in that bread or on an altar. And the idea that we would have an altar in our church building, uh, every so often in one of our church services, someone will refer to that 
which will soon not be there, <laughs> to that as an altar. It's very sad. And some of you I know, some of you know when someone mistakenly refers to that as an altar to look over at me and you have a bit of laugh at my expense because you see me going red and angry and smoke coming out of my ears. Because that is a table, not an altar. And it's so sad over the years, people in Anglican and other supposedly Protestant churches have built communion tables to look like altars. Uh, Because it's not. It's a table. And if you want to go and eat your supper there afterwards, you go and do it. Because that is no more holy than that table there. Or any other table. And if you want to set your kids up there with some crayons to do some drawing sometime, or if you've got a kids' church class and you want to do that, don't do it during church, but... And put a, maybe put a plastic sheet on it so I don't have to clean it up afterwards. But, but my point is, it's just a table. Because you don't have an altar, because that's in the Old Testament when we had to sacrifice lambs and goats for our sin. But we don't make sacrifices anymore because Jesus' death has paid the price for our sins once for all. One sacrifice, once made for the sins of all humanity. And we take and receive the benefit of that sacrifice. How? thank you to the group over here i'll ask again we've taken received the benefit of that sacrifice how by faith alone now my hope is as we've talked about these wrong ideas we haven't just got a picture of what the lord's supper is not uh, but instead i hope we've also started to get a picture for what it is it is a wonderful visual and physical and tangible way to remember the very center of our faith the death of jesus and it is a wonderful and visual and tangible way to strengthen our faith in Jesus. But is there something more going on when we eat the bread or drink the wine or the grape juice as we have? The reformers actually disagreed about this. They all agreed it was to remember the death of Jesus. They all agreed on that. But does eating the bread and the wine actually do anything else for you? And I think John Calvin and then in the Anglican Church, Thomas Cranmer got it right. They said, when you eat the bread and when you drink the wine, you are eating the body and blood of Jesus, not physically, but in a spiritual sense, by faith. It's still just bread and wine, but as you eat it, you're saying, I am in Christ and he is in me. You're saying, I'm with Jesus. I am connected to him. And in that way, it is meant to strengthen your faith. By as you eat this physical piece of bread, you're saying, I, the, the body of Jesus was given for me. And, and as you drink this physical grape juice or wine, you're saying, the blood of Jesus was given for me. It's a spiritual reality. This is how Thomas Cranmer put it. He said, we should consider not what the bread and wine be in their own nature. He's saying, they're just bread and wine. But what they import to us and signify that lifting up our minds, we should look up to the blood of Christ with our faith should touch him with our mind and receive him with our inward man. I hope you can see what he's saying in old English. He's saying, as you eat the bread and juice, it's meant to help you recognise the spiritual reality of your connection to Jesus. That's why it's called communion. You're, You're communing with Jesus. By faith, we are connected to Jesus. And so in the same way that the bread and the juice physically nourish us and fill us up, We're saying, Jesus is my spiritual food. I don't need anything else. Christ alone. He is the one who sustains me. He is the one who strengthens me. 
Well, there's so much more to say about the Lord's Supper and I can't cover everything. And really part of the difficulty is that the rest of the New Testament doesn't tell us a lot about how Christians shared the Lord's Supper, which says something in and of itself. You see, remembering the death of Jesus comes up all the time in the New Testament, but doing it in this special way really only comes up in one passage, in 1 Corinthians 11, our second reading from before. So turn there now to 1 Corinthians 11 on whatever page it is of your Bibles, not somewhere in the Old Testament like our PowerPoint slide said. Now, the Apostle Paul was not setting out rules on how to share the Lord's Supper here. He was dealing with the fact that this church in Corinth was doing it badly. They were coming together for a meal, and that's the first thing to notice. They didn't come together for a token little bit of wine, a little bit of bread. They came together for a meal together. Uh, but then, like everything, when you read 1 and 2 Corinthians, everything that you, if you ever want to see how not to do church, just read 1 and 2 Corinthians and read what they were doing. And it was chaos. So some people were getting there early and eating all the food. And other people were turning up and going, where's all the food? And other people were even getting drunk. They were coming to the church fellowship meal and getting drunk. And, and so, like everything, it was chaos. And so Paul says, that is not how it was meant to be. And he takes them back to what Jesus said about using the bread and the wine to remember his death. And then he makes a few points about how they should do it. And I'll draw a couple out. His first point is... If as we eat the bread and drink the wine, if they are symbolising the death of Jesus, then make sure you treat it seriously. That's his big point in this passage. Look at how he puts it there in verses 26 and 27. He says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore... Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy way will be guilty of sin against the body and blood of the Lord. See, he's not saying it is the body and blood of the Lord. He's saying if it is proclaiming his death, if that's what it's doing, if that's what it's symbolising, if you treat it in an unworthy manner as you take it, then you're actually sinning against the death of Jesus. So don't take it in an unworthy way. Take it very seriously. But what does that mean? Well, look at verse 28 and 29. He says, So a man should examine himself. In this way he should eat the bread and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognising the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Now verse 28, examining himself, what does that mean? It means thinking about your sin and just what it cost Jesus to pay the price for it. It means coming with repentance, confessing our sin to God. To, to drink the, the wine or eat the bread in an unworthy manner means to come just boldly and walk in as if somehow you deserve it. It means to just come and treat it like, well, what, is it, what does it matter? To eat it in a worthy manner means you consider yourself and you say, I am a sinner. And it cost Jesus his life to pay for my sin. And so I come humbly with repentance, confessing my sin, saying, I don't deserve this, but thank you, Jesus. And it's a funny thing with the Lord's Supper. We come with a mixture of humble sorrow for our sin on the one hand, but also great joy in our forgiveness. 
It's not meant to be somber when you share the Lord's Supper, but it's also not meant to be taken lightly. And when it talks about recognising the body there in verse 29, he's making a play on words. The whole point of this chapter has been about the way they treat one another within the body of Christ. And so what he's saying here is, as you share the meal, make sure you show love and concern for your brothers and sisters in Christ. And that is the other big thing with the Lord's Supper. It's not just about you and I individually communing with God. Sometimes you see that when people come up and they go up to the communion rail and they kneel there and it's their own private moment with God. We'll have that at home. You come to church to do it together. You see, the point of communion, the Lord's Supper, is to share it in fellowship. It's a fellowship meal. And so look down at verse 33. He says, Therefore, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. The point is, this is about us together sharing in our faith in Jesus and sharing in his death on our behalf. Now, there are practical realities of how we can do that on a Sunday night here at church. I would rather we actually have a meal rather than this token. I I would rather, I think that's more true to the New Testament, but there are just too many of us. And if you then add in our other four, soon to be five other congregations, it's just too hard to do. But there's no reason we can't, whenever we eat, remember the death of Jesus. But one of the reasons I like everyone to take the bread and juice, when we have it later on, this is how we'll do it, to take the bread and juice back to their seat and then together we eat the bread and together we eat the juice, is we're sort of at least in a token way, symbolically saying, this is not just about me and God, it's about us together remembering the death of Jesus and being strengthened in our faith. Now a couple of other very small points, just because they're the questions everyone asks, and it saves me having a hundred and something conversations after church. The first question is, who should lead the Lord's Supper? There is no requirement in the Bible that it must be an ordained person. So if you have people over from church for dinner and, and you want to break the bread and drink a glass of, glass of wine, if you're over 18, with, with, a, with a group of brothers and sisters, you go ahead and you do it. You don't need me there. You don't need an ordained person there. Feel free to invite me. But, but then, please, if you do, don't ask me to do it. Just like, don't ask me to say grace when you have me over to your house. You say grace. It's your house. I'm coming to your place. You don't need the special guy, because I'm not special. I'm a sinner like you, saved by grace, through faith alone. You see, but in the life of the church, we have rules that it should be an ordained person. Uh, Not because I have magical powers or something, but just so that we can make sure that it's done in a proper way. That's why we have those rules. And especially to make sure that wrong and unhelpful ideas don't creep in. Just like I have rules about who's allowed to preach from the front of church. Second question, how often should we have the Lord's Supper? I tell you, that is the most common question I get at one of our welcome afternoon teas. When are we going to have the Lord's Supper? Especially from people who've come from other denominational backgrounds. Some people say, well, Jesus said, do this as often as you eat it or drink it. And they then say, so therefore you should have it every week at church. But I want to say to you, I actually think that is the one meaning people take that can't be what Jesus was meaning. Because he didn't say that, he said, do that as often as you eat or drink it, which must either mean as often as you have the Passover, which means once a year, or every time you eat bread or drink wine, like just about every meal in their world of that time. 
Ironically, the idea that you would do it weekly when you meet together at church is the one thing he doesn't seem to be saying. And I think the point Jesus is making is not set up some special ceremony that you do in church every week. His point is, remember my death and remember what sustains you spiritually as often as you eat the food and drink the drink that sustains you physically. So you know what I think is the main application of, of the passages about the Lord's Supper is every time you eat and are sustained physically, you give thanks to God that he sustains you spiritually and sent his son to die for you. It's actually more about saying grace and meaning it than about sharing the Lord's Supper. So many of the reformers tried to move it away from every week because it had become the wrong focus of church life. And to make the point, this ceremony is not the centre of the church life. The word of God being preached and read is the centre of church life. That's why Cranmer in the Anglican Prayer Book came up with other services. It wasn't just the Lord's Supper. He wrote morning prayer and evening prayer. And in all of them, you had Bible readings and a sermon. Because that's the most important thing. You do not have the Lord's Supper, he said, without the word of God being taught. In Europe, a lot of the reformers wanted to have it once a year. Others wanted it every week. And they had to do this funny thing called compromise. Calvin wanted it a bit more often, but he came to a compromise of four to six times a year in his church. And that's my view on the right amount. Not so often so that people get caught up in religious nonsense. But often enough that it's helpful for helping us remember Jesus' death on our behalf. But there's no rules on that. If another church wants to have it more often, another church less often, the, the Bible, no one's breaking the word of the Bible at that point. Because if the Reformation taught us anything, it was that in the end, the important thing is that every time we meet together, two things must happen. The first is, the word of God should be read and taught. And the second is, we should remember the death of Jesus. And it doesn't overly worry me if a church has communion once a week or once a year. It doesn't really worry me too much. But what I care about is that the word of God is preached faithfully. The word of God is read. And the death of Jesus is the focus of the songs they sing and the prayers they pray and the words that are preached. That's what matters. And I hope if you've learned anything over this last five weeks, you've learned that. What we believe matters. And so our authority is the Bible alone. And we are saved by Christ alone. And that salvation is a free gift from God. It is grace alone. And we take a hold of that wonderful free gift. How? Through faith alone. That's what I want you to remember. Well, we're going to share the Lord's Supper, I think, after a song in a moment. But I'll lead us in prayer now. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful gift of the Lord's Supper. And for way these, the way these physical things, bread and juice help point us to the thing that matters most the death of Jesus and we give you thanks for those who fought these battles 500 years ago at the reformation that they were willing to stand up and be counted for the truth of your word even to the point of costing them their lives in many cases and father we pray that we would not take that sacrifice lightly but instead we would continue to hold on to the truths that they fought for that our salvation is by Christ alone and is a free gift, grace alone, and we receive it through faith alone. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.